Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. (laughs) A couple years ago, we did a big series called It's a Real Mother. It was about discrimination against working moms. We talked to the first governor to give birth while in office. We learned how Sweden got new fathers to take family leave. We heard what happens when the boss lets everyone bring their babies to work. And we talked to this Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and mother of two. Hi, I'm Bridget Schulte. I am the director of the Better Life Lab at New America, where I'm trying to solve all the problems I wrote about in my book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Bridget's book is about how we got here to this place where American work culture stacks the deck against mothers and why that bias affects everyone, including people without kids. And Bridget, it's been about two years since we last spoke, so I wanted to check in with you and see if anything has changed in the world of discrimination against mothers in the workplace. So we're going to break down specifics in just a minute. But in general, would you say we're doing better, worse, or about the same? It's mixed. It's a mixed picture. The gender division of labor at home, basically women are still doing everything at home. I went to a time-use conference over the summer, and the numbers haven't budged in like a decade or two. Time use, if you're not familiar, is just measuring how people spend their time. How many hours we spend on things like work, childcare, leisure activities. But on the other hand, you know, I do see glimmers of hope. And so I do want to shine a spotlight on that because I think that that's part of change. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Today on the show, we're going to hear where problems for working moms still exist and where they've gotten a little worse. But Bridget will also share some glimmers of hope. And we want to shine a spotlight on one very shiny glimmer of hope that we found ourselves. Or more accurately, it found us. Discrimination against moms in the workplace is slippery. It's illegal to fire someone or deny them opportunities simply because they have children or may have them in the future. But still, employers find ways to get away with it. Part of what I loved about talking to Bridget last time was that she made the issues so easy to understand. And she told me a bunch of things that really caught me by surprise. Like when she talked about the gender pay gap. This was a problem I thought I understood. In my mind, I was like, 
Obviously, women are paid less than men because men hold the power. But the real story is much more disheartening. Here's what Bridget said back in 2017. What's really interesting is that childless men and childless women, they're, they're pretty much at parity, something like 96 cents to the dollar. But if you look at mothers and fathers, that's where you see the pay gap. That pay gap between mothers and fathers is 76 cents to the dollar. So, you know, you have to look at, well, why is that? And that goes back to those cultural norms, that when a man becomes a father, he gets what, what ec- economists call a fatherhood bonus. He gets a raise because we think, okay, he's going to be the provider and he's going to work harder and he's going to be more dedicated. So we're going to give him more money and reward him for being a father. But she has a child and we think, oh my goodness, she's going to uh, she's going to be leaving early for the childcare pickup. She's going to be coming in late. She's going to be frazzled. She's going to come in with snow white stickers and barf on her shoulders, which I have done. So Bridget, that was you two years ago. And I'm curious to know, are we still seeing a fatherhood bonus and motherhood penalty? Absolutely. Absolutely. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed at all. If anything, um, one of the things that I've really been looking at in the last couple of years is what's happening at work with work hours. And what you're seeing is, in a sense, something that could actually exacerbate that gender gap. For instance, in sort of more higher wage or professional class, there is this growing reward of really long work hours. You know, it's like we don't know how to measure knowledge work. And so we we fall back on the old factory method, which is like, oh, if you're here longer, you must be better. Or if you're here at all, if you're FaceTime, then you must be a better worker. So if you're working flexible hours or you're working remotely, there's research that shows people tend to think that you're not working as hard. And then on the other end of the spectrum, one of the things that we've really seen in the last couple of years is increasing job precarity. And we're seeing like increasing kind of erratic schedules for um, low-wage workers, increasing part-time hours, which then if you have a, a scheduling algorithm can put you all over the map. These are jobs where a lot of women, a lot of mothers, a lot of single mothers work, really low pay, you know, their schedules are all over the map. Uh, so you're you're really seeing, I think, in some ways going backward when it comes to the gender pay gap and, and looking at work and work culture. No, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. It's true though. And, okay. and particularly for women of color, I think you know, when we talked about the gender pay gap, that was sort of looking on average. But the pay gap is much larger for, say, an African-American mother compared to a white father. In 2018, African-American women were earning, on average, only 65% of what white men were earning. And even more disappointing, that's a slightly bigger wage gap than the year before. It's depressing and sad, but if we're really going to have real solutions, that is one thing that I think is really important, that in the last couple of years, we've come to see so many more nuances and more areas where we need more work. So another thing you had mentioned two years ago was that fathers are thought to be great if they do something like coach Little League or occasionally pick their kids up from school in a pinch. But if it's a regular request to your employer to do it, say, a couple of times a week, they get penalized. Is that changing at all? So in general, 
men are still not doing as much, say, um, caregiving or housework at home. When they are, they tend to be, um, if you look at the time they spend with their children, they are doing more caregiving, but it tends to be kind of the fun parent roles or kind of the non-time sensitive tasks or more educational activities. Whereas mothers are still tending to do, you know, getting everybody dressed, out the door, fed, the really time-intensive, labor-intensive, must-do chores every day. And you see the same thing in housework, too, uh, that women are also still doing most of the kind of time-sensitive, daily grind kind of chores, whereas men tend to have more flexibility. They tend to do more of the outdoor chores, maybe the one-off repairs here and there, maybe you know take the car into the shop once every six months or so, things that they can control. So it's a completely different experience of chores and caregiving for men and women. And the data still bear that out. Bridget found research on this that just blew me away. Turns out single moms do less housework than moms in heterosexual relationships. Just having a man in the house increases their workload. I should point out that LGBTQ partners tend to divvy up housework more fairly, partly because once they throw out heterosexual gender expectations, couples are forced to have conversations about who will do what. But on average, moms are doing twice the amount of housework as dads. And that's huge because then when you have a lot of those time demands at home, that really impacts your ability to to have have sort of a clear plate and a clear mind to be able to focus at work. Is the solution to this problem on dads or is it on employers? Like, do we need employers first to make it okay for dads to take on more of the responsibilities? So I think that we need change on a couple different levels. One of the things we really need is public policy. A nation basically telegraphs to the world what they view is important and what reflects their values in their public policy. And right now, we have virtually no workable public policies that support families being able to combine work and life and that support gender equality. So we need really good public policy. We need paid family and medical leave. We need people to be able to have the ability to have control over their schedules, whether it's flexible work or predictable work. We need much more investment in affordable childcare help with elder care. You know, we need to be able to make it possible in our policies for families to not only survive, but thrive. We need decent work. We need a living wage. We don't have any of that. Uh, We have some worker movements at local and state levels, which are very hopeful. Bridget's excited about cities that have raised the minimum wage to $15 and the ones that have legislated more stable and predictable work schedules. Some states have expanded their paid family leave systems. But we need a much broader national conversation about just what we value and where we're going. And the second thing, you absolutely have to have workplace policies that work for men and women to be able to both have meaningful work and meaningful time for family and life outside of work. Um, You need to move away from the kind of Elon Musk, you know, tweeting at the factory at two in the morning and aren't I amazing and overwork kind of work all the time, sort of work slavery almost. And that's a tall order because that's really become such a cultural norm right now. So we need workplace culture change. You know, so if you have a policy that says 
you know, men should be able to take, say, family leave to help with caregiving. But if you have a culture that makes it impossible for that parent, for that man to do it without being feeling like he's going to be punished or stigmatized or put on the daddy track, you know, um, then men aren't going to take it. When we come back, Bridget tells us about one company that figured out how to get men to take that family leave. And it is such a simple fix. Employers, take note. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. (laughs) Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. We're back with Bridget Schulte. One of the things Bridget and I talked about a lot in 2017 is the ideal worker. The ideal worker, in America at least, is an employee who always puts work first and is available at all hours. Here is something unsettling that Bridget said about the ideal worker last time we spoke. There is a survey, um, this WFD Consulting did a survey of top managers and CEOs around the world, and they said, they asked them, who is the ideal worker? And more than three-fourths came back and they said, someone with no caregiving responsibilities. Well, well, who is that? You know, that's certainly not any mother. Um, it doesn't really refer to uh, many young fathers, but it's this this notion that, you know, kind of work is this completely separate sphere and it should be completely all-consuming and you should dedicate your life to it and sacrifice everything else to it. Have you seen any shift in the last couple of years in the notion of the ideal worker? Like, is our country changing what what we think of as the ideal worker? And have you seen any workplaces make an effort to change their own definition of what an ideal worker is? Sadly, no. I haven't seen that in the last couple of years. When you look again at national level data, we're still working long hours. We're working longer hours than other advanced economies. Uh, We're working more odd hours in the evenings or weekends. Uh, We don't take vacation, even though we don't have a national paid vacation policy. There's lots of data that shows that when vacation is available, people don't take it or they take work along with them. You know, to me, so much of what's going on in the United States is just its utter failure of imagination of how things really could be. And this fear that if there are any other way that somehow, you know, I don't know, we'll dry up and blow away or we won't be this amazing economy, where there's really good research that shows that if we do do things differently, we could actually be even more effective. We could actually have, you know, you could have time for life and guess what, actually do better work. That's so counterintuitive to people, which is why it's so important then to shine a light on bright spots. So let me just tell you one that I found. I was doing some reporting and there is a law firm, White and Case, and they 
they were looking at, at like so many other law firms, you know, they hire at 50-50, the, you know, the, the starting class. That's a 50-50 split of men and women. And then there's just attrition, particularly over the childbearing years and women drop out or opt out or they can't stay in or, or men are the ones that then, you know, get onto the partner track and, you know, they've got the networks and the old born networks working for them and they, uh, and they get to the top. And so they really kind of thought long and hard about their paid family and medical leave culture and their policy and, and really got buy-in from everyone for a completely new kind of policy that I have not seen before that I think has real promise. And that is everyone, when you become a parent, by default, you get a certain amount of time off. And I forget the the exact number, but um, you get that time off. And if you don't want it, you have to go and say, I don't want the time off. I don't want my paid leave. That's for any parent, regardless of gender? It's for any parent, man, woman, anyone across the gender spectrum, you know, uh, biological child, foster child, adoptive child. It's across the board. And so instead of you having to go and ask for time off, oh, pretty please, may I have this leave that's on the policy? And I'm kind of scared to ask for it, which is sort of how policies are. That's how mine was. Please, may I have this policy that I'm entitled to? Instead, the default is you get this policy. And what's happened at the firm is fascinating. That in the like in the first year that it was implemented, far more men ended up taking it than women. Hmm. And the other thing that's very cool is that they made it available not just to the highly paid attorneys, but to everybody. So, you know, the the secretaries, the receptionists, the IT people, the service people. So it was really a, a firm-wide culture change. And that, I think we have to look for examples like that. That's one, it's a diamond in like a whole lot of coal out there. You know, I see people in my industry in podcasting tweeting about being at the office late, about their staff working in the middle of the night. Sometimes they post pictures of like being in the studio and it's like they they wear this as a badge of honor, like as if this makes their team and their work better or something. And I see these things and it makes me so mad. You know what I would love to see? Because I think you're right. It, it's this busyness, this overwork, these long hours, these crazy hours. We have come to create value around them. And wouldn't it be great if instead of like, oh my God, they're so amazing, they're working so hard, wouldn't it be great if the conversation was like, wow, it's too bad you're so inefficient? You know, wouldn't it be, <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great if you could get your work done on time? What happened? What could you do better next time? So can we just for a second like address the people out there who are working really long hours for whatever reason and have the impulse to post like a braggy post on social media about how late they're at the office. What do you suggest they do instead, like when they have this impulse? Such a good question. I suppose if you're going to post something on social media, say, here I am again at the office at two in the morning. What am I doing wrong? Question mark. (laughs) I'm posting this for my own personal accountability so I can learn a different way of, uh, of working and try to do it better. You know, maybe think about it as an accountability tool. Mm-hmm. I like that. And then for those of us who, who see it and it makes us mad, should we respond or just let it go? I guess, again, what I would say is to begin to push back a little bit against the prevailing narrative. And maybe it's like, oh, I hope you're okay. 
you know, hope you're not on the road to burnout or, man, what happened? Did something go wrong? What could you learn? What could you do better next time? Or, you know, I'm sure that people could be incensed by that. So it just depends on, yeah. you know, how how uh, how pissed off you want people to be. But honestly, we can't change culture without beginning to nudge it and begin exactly. beginning to ask these questions. On a scale of 1 to 10, I don't want to piss people off to a 10 because then I think they stop listening. But maybe a three, like a nudge, but they feel it. My husband recently tweeted about how he's tired of seeing people humble brag about being at the office late. He says it was one of his most popular tweets, and he got supportive responses from people who have kids and people who don't. So you don't have to, like, call specific people out to make an effective nudge. You can just put it out there. Speaking of my husband, I want to play you something Bridget said last time that felt uncomfortably relevant to my marriage. Here it is. Women are still, regardless where you sit on the socioeconomic spectrum, they are still doing the majority of the care work, the child care and the housework, and that is exhausting. They are also doing the majority of the mental labor, the logistics planning, you know, uh, why people seem to think that women are biologically wired to make dentist appointments and summer camp planning is beyond me, and yet that is still the expectation. Um, men still talk about they want to quote-unquote help out. Well, that doesn't free you of any of that Mental labor. Okay, Bridget, this one was very close to home for me. After I heard you say it a couple years ago, I realized that this was me. I was doing all of the mental labor. And it really um, forced me to sit down with my husband and begin a talk that is still ongoing. Um, but we have, like, we have made progress and we've been divvying up the work more, but but it has been a process. And I mean, my husband switched jobs because of a lot of these issues that we're talking about, and it has completely changed my life. Wow. Yeah, because he now works for bosses who have young children. And I wonder, have you seen anything to indicate that men are taking on more of the mental labor of parenting? No. I'm seeing nothing. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, that sounds depressing. But the again, I went to a, a time use conference over the summer. And I swear, I'd been to the same time use conference. It's an international conference. They're looking at time diary data across the globe. I went in 2010, I think. And it was almost like deja vu all over again. When it comes to housework, childcare, the mental load, emotional labor, the numbers have not moved anywhere, um, particularly in the United States. So we actually at the Better Life Lab, we're just starting what we're calling experiments on this very thing. Bridget is the director of the Better Life Lab. They work on all the things she's been talking about, changing social policy to be more family-friendly, promoting gender equality in the workplace. As we've established, these are pretty daunting goals. So Bridget and her team have designed these experiments, activities you can try at home, to make it easier to have equity within your family. Because it's not like you can legislate, you know, thou shalt share the laundry and, you know, summer camp planning. And so we're trying to use behavioral design and behavioral science principles, almost like exposure therapy, to kind of nudge, uh, you know, encourage families to try experiments in sharing the load. And one of the experiments, we call it the Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
Because when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was working as a lawyer and she had two kids and her younger son kept getting into trouble at school. And so the school would always call her, always call her during the day, always expect her to come, always expect her to be at the meetings. And at one point she was just really fed up. And she said to the school, my son has two parents. Next time, call his father. And so what we're encouraging parents and families to do is to sit down and really think about that, just even in terms of the ecosystem at school or, or activities or, you know, the PTA or the sports teams. Who is on the contact list? Who gets the email? It's usually the mom. And sometimes the forms only give you the opportunity to put in one name. Yes. And so we're encouraging families to push back, to put two names in, for both parents to get on the email list, for both parents to have their phone numbers there. And then the family decide, you know, who's going to respond in which instance, who's going to take on the PTA, who owns that, who's going to take on the soccer team, who owns that, who's going to take on the parent-teacher conferences, who owns that, you know, and do you switch every month or, you know, every semester or whatever. Come up with your own system that recognizes that we actually have structures that continue to reinforce that mothers are the primary or that one parent should be the lead or the primary. So we're working on those kinds of experiments to help families give them tools because it's really difficult to have these conversations. They tend to turn into what my friend Jessica DeGroote over at Third Path Institute calls a tango where, you know, it's usually the mother who begins feeling overwhelmed and kind of resentful and angry because a lot of this work is invisible. Your partner, they haven't seen you do this work. They don't know it. And they're like, what are you talking about? I just took out the garbage and you're nagging and you're awful. Uh And so then you get in this tangle of, well, I do this. Well, I do this. Well, I do this. Well, I do more. No, I do more. And so part of what we're trying to do is like get you out of that tango, kind of take that deep breath and really start to get clear on just how much work it takes to run a house and, and to be a parent and to list it out if you have to. Figure out who's doing it now. The Gottman Institute does this amazing exercise. It's called Who Does What? And they have a huge list. And we're going to have that as one of our experiments, a huge list of just all sorts of things from, you know, sending thank you notes to planning birthday parties to like grocery shopping and cooking, you know, basically everything that it takes to run a house and run a family. And then beside it, you write who does it, who does what. And then you begin a conversation about what you want. What would it look like? What would it feel like if it was different and if it felt fairer? And figure you're not going to get it right the first time, but have an experiment. Try it out. You know, what you said about divvying up the mental labor was really interesting and helpful because I think a lot of times we think of it as one big bucket. Like someone's going to do the laundry, someone's going to do the cooking. Like in my house, I do the cooking and he does the laundry. But then when it comes to the mental labor, I think we think of it as also goes to one person. But the idea that you could be like, okay, you're going to arrange play dates and I'm going to arrange summer camp. Like it's helpful to think of it as like, it doesn't all have to fall to one person and you just have to pick one. Right, that it can be a trade-off and that it's something that you can, you know, it's not like both of you have to answer who's going to bring oranges to the soccer team. Mm -hmm. But if one of you knows, it's like, look, I got the soccer team. Okay, great, I'll do PTA or Mm -hmm. great, I'll do the pediatrician. You know, recognize that it is work and that it is work that each of you needs to take ownership of and share. You, my friend, you can be an early adopter of these Better Life Lab experiments. 
They're running beta tests on them right now. And you can find a link on our website, longestshortesttime.com, in the post for this episode. That's episode 213. We've also got a link to the Gottman Institute's Who Does What list. Okay, so all these experiments can help you change things at home. And you might be thinking, yeah, okay, but I need to change things at work. Well, that's something you can do too. Coming up, the story of one woman who heard what Bridget said last time and took it as a serious call to action. And man, did she act. Stay with us. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We are back, and I want you to meet one of our listeners. My name is Grace, and I am a consultant for a large healthcare company in the Mid-Atlantic. Grace started working for this large Mid-Atlantic healthcare company, which she asked us not to name, in 2016. It was her first job with a salary and benefits. I was absolutely a workaholic, working like 12, 14-hour days trying to, you know, impress people and show my value. And I was really, really into it. I I still am very passionate about my career. But um, three months into my brand new big girl job, I found out that I was pregnant. And um, it was not an ideal situation. I had uh, just ended a very long-term relationship, and this was uh, with the rebound. (laughs) Um, And I made the very difficult decision to um, follow through with the pregnancy and become a mom, even if it meant being a single mom. Grace did not become a single mom. She and Rebound Guy fell in love and got married while she was pregnant. But I also felt a lot of guilt associated with the fact that I had just gotten this great job at a new company and I was going to have to ask them for time off, essentially, like a year after starting. Grace looked on the company's internal website to see what kind of leave policy they had. She couldn't find anything. When she was around 10 weeks along, she went to HR to get filled in and asked that they not discuss her pregnancy with her direct supervisor just yet. When Grace did tell her boss at 17 weeks, she was nervous. But her boss was good about it. She even hugged Grace and told her everything would work out. I was just feeling so grateful that I had a job and that I had a place to come back to and that they would actually take me back, that it didn't even occur to me to be upset about the fact that we didn't have paid parental leave. It's essentially unpaid. The way the leave worked at the time was that you could get five weeks of short-term disability paid at two-thirds of your salary. So it was essentially like three weeks and a little bit more of pay, and then you could take the rest of the 12 weeks unpaid um, of FMLA. FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act, protects your job for up to 12 weeks, but only if your company has more than 50 employees and you've been working there for at least a year. It does not require that you be paid during that time. And actually, less than 15% of Americans have access to paid family leave at all. So what Grace was getting was pretty much the norm. Not great, but in some ways a little better than what most parents get in the United States. 
So I go out on leave, and when I came back to work, um, there had been a little bit of a baby boom. And we do have a mother's room, but there was just too much demand on it, and there was no way to coordinate scheduling around it. It was sort of on a drop-in basis. There was always somebody in there. The room was small. No dividers for privacy. So I ended up pumping in a supply closet and then also in my car a lot of the time. Did it feel ironic that here you were working at a healthcare company and you didn't have these benefits in place? Absolutely. And it it wasn't one of the... It, oh my gosh, yes. It's one of those things you don't think about until you need it. And the irony of... It's not just a healthcare company, we're a benefits company that going into too much detail. And we are revered in the community as being a fantastic place to work for working families. And it wasn't until I got pregnant that I realized how much the benefits really sucked. In Grace's job, she's on the road a lot, driving to meet with doctors at their offices. So she needed to find a private place to pump in her car between appointments. She eventually found the perfect place, a peaceful, quiet graveyard. While she pumped, she listened to podcasts. Now remember, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and right as I returned to work, you released the It's a Real Mother series on workplace discrimination. And it got me so fired up, Hillary, because as you'll remember, I didn't think there was anything wrong with my company or what it was offering me. And the more I listened to the people in your series, the more I realized, like, I could relate so so much to what people were saying. I realized, like, oh my gosh, I didn't get paid for my time off or like, I'm pumping in a supply closet too. I didn't even realize that was a problem. So my awesome mentor, she has her baby six weeks after me. She comes back to work. She's experiencing all the same problems. And she calls me into her office one day and says, I think we need to do something about this. And before she could even finish that sentence, I was so fired up about this based on all the energy I got from your mini series that before she could even finish her sentence, I said, like, yes, absolutely. Let's figure out how to advocate without looking like a union. (laughs) The two of them marched into HR, talked to two reps. We really tried to line it up with the business objectives and talk about retention. And we brought in statistics and data and talked through you know, what it means to uh, to support people during this transition and how you're repaid in, in retention and loyalty. And we brought in stats about how much it costs to replace, you know, employees at different levels and things like that. The HR folks heard them out. Grace says they were surprised to hear that FMLA was mostly unpaid and they were sympathetic about the mother's room. But they told Grace and her mentor, this isn't something we can just do. You can't just walk in and start making demands. So what you have to do is create an employee resource group. (laughs) But it can't just be for moms because we want to be inclusive. So you need to include dads and adoptive parents and pregnant people and people who are, you know, foster parents and grandparents and people caring for elderly family members. Grace and her colleague put out the call that they were forming this group. Yeah, it's called the Working Parents and Caregivers Employee Resource Group. And we actually had to have people apply and do interviews because it was so competitive. So many people wanted to be like our treasurer and our secretary and the communications chair. Wow. And was it mostly moms? Yeah. We actually had to make an effort to get men involved. And why was that important to you? Because I think that I see this as such a feminist issue that if we don't, if we don't, advocate for gender-neutral leave policies and we don't encourage men to take the full leave that they're offered, we're just reinforcing the same structures that that kind of work against women in more informal ways. 
The group grew to 200 members, and they took proposals back to HR for all the changes they wanted. Almost two years later, the group has pretty much everything they asked for. The mother's room problem was an especially tricky one to solve. Not only was Grace competing with all the other moms at her office to pump in privacy, this problem was happening at all 20 locations her company has in the Mid-Atlantic. But they finally came up with a solution. Outlook calendars. You just book your pumping time, same way you'd book the conference room. Almost all of the mother's rooms have a sink, but none of them have soap dispensers, paper towels, trash cans, bulletin boards, tables. Some of them are really dirty. They're not on a normal sanitation schedule. So we deployed the troops and we got our site ambassadors, who are these awesome people that have agreed to be on our leadership team who represent each of our locations. We got them to complete a survey about the rooms and to take pictures for us. And we developed this massive presentation. And just like two weeks ago, I shared it with the director of facilities and said, hey, we have like 20 mother's rooms and only two of them have soap. <laughs> and he, he's committed to actually supplying all of the rooms with sort of the basic list of supplies that aren't necessarily federally mandated, but that our group has identified as being really important to be able to, you know, pump breast milk, but also to be able to, um, in, a, in a sanitary way, clean your breast pump because otherwise you're going to the pantry and you're cleaning it in front of other people, which can be embarrassing and unsanitary. Oh, the coolest thing we did so far, I think it's the coolest thing we did, is that we um, developed a little sub-site on our company's internal internet to be able to aggregate together all of the resources that anybody would need related to parenting and caregiving. So not just information about benefits and breastfeeding, but also things related to you know flexibility policies, sick leave policies, things like that. It is crazy that it can be so hard to find information on basic things like how much leave your company offers, how much of it is paid, if your state offers any benefits beyond the standard FMLA. So this subsite that Grace is talking about is really cool because it means you can find all of that info easily without telling anyone at work if you're having a kid or if you're even just thinking about it. Probably the biggest and most important change is that our company now offers six weeks of paid parental leave to moms, dads, and adoptive parents which is a huge deal. So we went from three weeks, essentially, for moms and nothing for dads and adoptive parents, nothing at all. Grace and the resource group didn't stop there. Their membership has grown to 300, and they're pushing for 12 weeks of fully paid leave. This is a radical proposal given federal standards, but some companies are going even further. The Washington Post, for example, recently announced they were upping their paid leave for all parents to five months. Okay, so if you're feeling jealous of Grace and what she's gotten done at her company, but you're thinking, I don't know, this sounds hard. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Just remember, Grace didn't know much about parental leave when she became a parent either. But this is like my favorite thing ever. I love it even more than my real job, my quote unquote real job. And if you want to put this on the air, if there's anybody out there that knows how I can do this professionally and for money, please contact me (laughs) because I am so into this and I really wish I could do this full time. Here at The Longest Shortest Time, we've gotten lots of emails from you guys saying you want change in your workplace. And we know every employer is different. But if you work in a place where you can ask for new policies, we hope that Grace's story can be a roadmap to help you get started. You know, I told Bridget Schulte about Grace, all the progress she made. Bridget was super excited to hear about it, but added this. Shame on HR 
<laughs> shame on them for telling them that people had to organize in order to ask for change or to make policies more transparent. I, I think we, we need our HR managers to so often they're, uh, they're there to protect the company uh, rather than think about workers and worker well-being, and we need a shift in mindset there as well. HR managers, we hope you're listening. And we do kind of love the idea of Grace working full-time to improve family policies all across our nation. So if you want to recruit her, contact us at longestshortesttime.com. This episode was produced by me, Hillary Frank, with Elizabeth Nakano and Jackie Sajiko. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Casey Holford. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Antonia Akatunde, Emery Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Special thanks this week to Joanna Broder. If you have a success story of improvements at your workplace when it comes to family stuff, leave us a comment at longestshortesttime.com in the post for this episode. That's number 213. We'll be back next week with experts who give me a language lesson. It's similar to like gas or like you're gassing. Yeah. When like you're hyping someone up. Yeah. When yeah. you're like, yo, like that fits dope. And they're like, you're gassing. Yeah, you're gassing. You're gassing. <laughs> That's right. Our teen panel returns to offer advice to parents. We'll talk about social media and vaping and Visco girls. A nine-year-old recently told me I'd be a Visco girl if I just had a scrunchie. This will all make sense if you listen to next week's episode. So don't miss it. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.